I got hooked on this question of, could I train my senses? And if so, what would change? For me, I embarked on this journey curious to know, you know, what was the big deal about wine? Hello, this is Camille Broderick, the host of Camille's Demi Hour, a show always educating on wine, healthy and delicious food, and the talented people of Nantucket. We will hear from those who create so many of these wonderful delights and experiences on island, from the chefs behind the line to the sommeliers on the floor and the gourmet artisans in between. Welcome to Camille's Demi Hour on 89.5 Nantucket's NPR station. I used to work in restaurants, those long hours, sometimes working two jobs. But there are a few things that really bring me back to those places and make me really want to get back there. Except this book I just read, Cork Dork by Bianca Bosker. This author, a determined and inquisitive young woman, took a full year to dive in and learn what all the fuss is about behind those who obsess about wine. Today, we get to speak with her about her drive to learn about these wine obsessives and her many great discoveries along the way of the sensory world behind wine. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Camille Broderick with Camille's Demi Hour on 89.5 Nantucket's NPR station. We have the book festival on island this weekend, and I pulled one of the great authors who is visiting who is in the food and wine world, or now she's in the food and wine world, because she wrote a beautiful, smart, funny, realistic book called Cork Dork, and has hit the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, Welcome, Bianca. Thank you. It's such an honor to be here. Why don't we hear about your background and where your writing skills and your talent originated? I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and I think one of the first inclinations that I had that I wanted to be a journalist started in high school. So I will say that I was an only child, so growing up I just devoured books. They were my best friends. And I spent a lot of time alone. I spent a lot of time writing short stories, you know, moving from sort of drawing stories to eventually writing stories. Um, but I do remember when I was in high school having an internship with our local paper. And I was able to do like this special issue cover story on places to go for high schoolers, essentially reviewing restaurants. But like, where do you hang out if you're under 21 and you want to be somewhere at night? And having this realization that I could, first of all, you know, create something, um, but also having this realization that I could have fun for work. In the case of writing this story, I was basically going to restaurants and getting to write about them, getting to get paid for that. But yeah, I think the best part of my job is really that I get to find stories that people don't know about and tell them. So your topics have spanned from art to technology, and you've written for great national publications like The New Yorker, The Atlantic. How does one become a published writer? You have the ideas. What was it like to get your first printed piece? Persistence. It's an ugly, ugly, messy process. <laughs> I think that, um, you know, there's really writing just takes an ability to feel stupid day after day after. Because I think that for me, I mean, I, there's nothing else in the world that I would rather do than write. But I think that it often has this like romantic element where you read the finished product and you can kind of imagine that it's just flown onto the page in this way, not so. I mean, I think a big part of being a writer is just being willing to sit with yourself and with your draft 
as they go from this ugly, mewling mess into something halfway decent. I mean, I feel like I start every story with this idea that it's going to be an opus, um, and then there's like a deep crash and burn somewhere along the way, being able to trust in the process to take you through the other side into something halfway decent. Um, but it's a blast. I mean, I have nothing else in the world that I'd rather be doing. I'm not quite sure which writer said it, but he said um, uh, it wasn't Walt Whitman. It was writing's really easy. You sit down and you slit your wrists. <laughs> <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> I think you begin with a beautiful idea, and if you're lucky, you end with something beautiful. But the middle is horrifically ugly. Well, how long did it take for you to write this? Because the details are so specific and the conversations, were you writing as you went along all the time and then put the drafts together? There's so much information in the book. So Cork Dork was a very particular type of book that really was about two and a half years uh, from the moment that I quit my job as the executive tech editor at the Huffington Post and started drinking very heavily in my quest to become a sommelier. It's a very personal book. I mean, it traces my evolution from a total wine nincompoop to starting over as the lowest of the low in the wine world, as a cellar rat, to then you know, getting hazed by sommeliers, working in Michelin-starred restaurants, dissecting brains with neuroscientists, getting my brain scanned, you know, into this journey of, becoming an expert, becoming a sommelier and actually working the floor. And so it was a book that required me to do the things that I write about before I could actually write about them. So I spent, I mean, a good year and a half just learning my craft, getting into these elite wine tasting groups, these sort of secret societies of aspiring master sommeliers hiding in plain sight, honing my palate, um, you know, giving up anything above a lukewarm temperature, brushing my teeth at certain times of day, daytime sobriety. I really had to do it before I could turn into a book. And so for me, it was really the research and then the writing began. This idea in concept, you describe a little bit about why you wrote the book. But generally, as you mentioned, the concept is you trying to infiltrate the wine sommelier world and understand why there's such a passion and such a um, a love that's hard to understand and comprehend to those who don't love wine that way. So what made you say, this is a book, this is worthy of a story? So I will say that when I started all of this, I was not a wine connoisseur. I mean, there are people, um, probably many of them in there took it, uh, who spend a lot of time agonizing over the choice between wines from, you know, Burgundy and Bordeaux. I would spend a lot of time agonizing over the choice between wines from a bottle and a box. And I initially got curious about this wine world when I learned about something called the Best Sommelier in the World competition. And if you've never seen this, let's just say it's basically the Westminster Dog Show with booze. Um, you know, highly trained and groomed specimens walking in a circle, getting judged on these minute details that you've never heard about as an outsider. And for me, it was a window into this world of cork dorks. And cork dork isn't just the title of the book. It's actually the restaurant industry's name for the most passionate and obsessive wine lovers among them. What intrigued me about these cork dorks was, first of all, you know, we think of wine as being a beverage of pleasure, and yet they turned it into this thing of god-awful pain. 
you know, they described it as a blood sport with corkscrews. They licked rocks to train their palates. They divorced their spouses to spend more time studying for these insanely difficult exams and competitions. And the journalist in me saw that there was this incredible subculture that was widely misunderstood, full of incredible stories begging it to be told. Like, I've always been obsessed with obsession, and no one does mania like wine lovers. But then secondly, on a more personal level, you know, at that point in time, I had spent five years as the executive tech editor for an online website. And, you know, I think there's times in life where things find you and they make you, they surface this nagging dissatisfaction that you've been able to bury deep inside. And for me, these cork dorks made me realize how sterile my life was. I mean, I spent all day, every day at screens, writing about things that happened on screens. And here was this group of people who believed in the physical senses and these physical pleasures. And more than that, I mean, they had the sort of super senses that I associate with bomb-sniffing dogs at airports. I got hooked on this question of, could I train my senses? And if so, what would change? So there was, for me, I embarked on this journey curious to know, you know, what was the big deal about wine? And more, you know, I, I realized at some point that I didn't just want to write about these cork dorks. I wanted to become one of them. <laughs> so yeah, against all the advice of my loved ones, I quit my job and started drinking very heavily and basically set out to, uh, to train as a sommelier. If you're just tuning in, you are hearing Bianca Bosker, the New York Times best-selling author of Cork Dork. And this is Camille's Demi Hour on 89.5 Nantucket's NPR station. And Bianca was just speaking about her pursuit to explore the subculture of the winos, the sommeliers, but even furthermore, understanding the the senses and the physicality that happens for these people in the tasting of wine and what makes good wine versus bad wine. And that brings me to my next question. Uh, you became very serious about understanding why people taste the way they taste and smell the way they smell. You took an academic approach and went as far as Germany to learn more about uh, olfactory senses and how we think about smells and how we smell. Can you tell us what resonated the most with some of those discoveries for you? One of the things I was most surprised to learn is that we're much better smellers than we think. And more than that, we can actually improve our sense of smell. I actually got my brain scanned by a neuroscientist while drinking wine to see if my own training had changed me. And I won't tell you what happened, but there is proof that with practice, we can really change the way that we experience the world. What I discovered as I was going through my journey in wine is that Basically, Plato and Aristotle decided early on that our senses of taste and smell don't matter. They are the animalistic base senses. And I think more than many of us realize that perspective has really infected science, philosophy, our everyday lives. Um, we tend to really dismiss smell. In fact, we, I think few of us really know how to tell the difference between what is taste and what is smell. Because, look, I was doing horrific things to my liver in the course of training to become a sommelier. I mean, in my old job, I would sit down at 9 a.m. to my editorial meetings most weekday mornings. In my new job as aspiring sommelier, you know, most weekday mornings around 9 a.m., I was sitting down to my first 6 to 12 glasses of wine. I was drunk by noon, desperately hungover by 2.30, and I wanted to know if these training regimens could actually have an effect. And what I found by diving into the scientific research with these sensory scientists, with these neuroscientists, 
um, was that really we have a much better sense of smell than we think, and we can actually train our senses. So there's this idea, this myth, really, that humans lost their sense of smell as we started walking upright. Um, in fact, we beat animals long considered the uber noses of the animal kingdom. And more than that, we can actually train and improve our sense of smell with just a little effort. It starts with something as simple as building your sense memory, building this alphabet of smells that you can recognize and identify. So for you, that might mean, you know, start the day by describing the smell of your shampoo in the shower. End each night trying to describe the smell of your toothpaste, your mouthwash before you go to bed. Really, it's no different than learning a language. We have to learn how to attach meaning smells. When I try to explain wine to people or teach people about wine, I say that they need to create their own language on how they talk about wine. In other words, how do they describe what they taste? How do they describe what they smell? You need to start thinking of those words. And you went as far as meeting a woman in uh, in the West Coast who actually created some of these more contemporary concepts in smell. You want to talk about that and how those levels of wine speak or that wine language develops with memory and how that association happens to describe wine? Yeah. So I have to say, as I was in these blind tasting groups with my aspiring master sommelier mentors, they would stick their noses into these glasses of wines and it would sound, as they described the smells, like they were reading off from a Wiccan book of love spells, baby's breath, sweat, robitussin, dry, desiccated, peppered pomegranate, like completely impossible. So I started looking at tasting notes, you know, these words we use to describe the flavors of wines. And for something that has become so ingrained in wine and food culture, it's surprisingly new. I mean, tasting notes, as it turns out, are really only as traditional as disco, like they came around in the 70s, were initially a very specific language. I mean, they were um, basically describing wines in terms of animal, vegetable, or mineral. If you look at the original terminology of tasting notes developed at the University of California, Davis, it never got more exotic than Fruit Loops. And yet now it's turned into, you know, describing wines like a finely made dress from an haute couture house in Paris. I mean, I wish I was making that up, but that's basically verbatim a Robert Parker tasting note. <laughs> and I think to me what's problematic about that is it creates so much confusion. It's very disempowering for wine drinkers because you smell a wine and you don't pick up that haute couture dress, you either assume that the wine is broken or your nose is. And yet, I do think that there's a place in some cases for these very evocative descriptors. Um, because there are, there are times and places where we just want to pique someone's curiosity. So you had three levels, I think you mentioned in the book, which I thought was very useful. You can use adjectives, you can use memories or those types of associations, because everyone has our own memory bank. And so what does it remind us of, or what do, what's the first thing that comes to our minds when we taste that wine? Yeah, and the scientific. I think in some cases there is a, a real scientific basis for tasting this. So Sauvignon Blanc, for example. We often describe Sauvignon Blanc as smelling like green bell pepper. Well, it turns out that Sauvignon Blanc grapes and green bell pepper contain the same chemical compound, pyrazines. So there is a certain logic. And if you're just tuning in, this is Camille Broderick with Camille's Demi Hour on 89.5 Nantucket's NPR station. And we were speaking with Bianca Bosker, the great New York Times bestselling author of Cork Dork. And she is here for the book festival this weekend. And we were just talking about some of the themes and 
great bits in her book. One of the main topics that you constantly touch upon is trying to describe, or it's that struggle for people to understand what makes a wine beautiful, costly, and valuable. And I think one of the best scenes or descriptors is when you have the ekem moment. But um, you're constantly going back and forth to prove what makes a $300 bottle of wine a $300 bottle of wine. Absolutely. And I think me, one of my favorite parts of the book is actually looking at what makes a $10 bottle of wine a $10 bottle of wine. So I got very interested in this question of wine quality and trying to understand you know, what makes a wine good. And I spoke with sommeliers, I spoke with wine economists, sensory scientists, winemakers, critics, you name it, and found that there was surprisingly little agreement on what made for a good wine. But there seemed to be some agreement on what made for a bad wine. And so this sent me into the epicenter of what a lot of connoisseurs would consider bad wine to this mass market factory wine producer that produces millions of bottles of wine a year. And I got this very rare firsthand glimpse into the way that most of the wine that most of us drink is not so much made as engineered. So it's sort of wine designed from the consumer backwards. And you can use dozens of different additives to really massage the flavor, the color, the mouthfeel of a bottle of wine. I think a big goal that I had with Cork Dork, which was to pull back the curtain on parts of the wine world that we don't often hear about. So I think so many of us look at a row of bottles at a wine shop and we see just glass bottles with paper labels and we assume that they're all sort of the same. You know, we hear a lot about tradition and romance and wine, but to me, the reality, you know, the story of the additives, the massaging, the behind the scenes of restaurants, really tells us the way the reality is so much messier and so much more interesting. This was a controversial subject with Eric Asimov from the New York Times. He was questioning, again, the beauty of wine and what makes a wine special. And it is the absence of all of that manipulation. And that's what makes it beautiful. So, uh, But you prove or you want to prove that there's a place for everything in some capacity. Yeah, so I wrote an adapted excerpt of Cork Dork that appeared in the New York Times. And it set off a very lively conversation in the wine world. (laughs) And the story that I wrote was partially highlighting the manipulations that go into wines, which I think most people are not aware of. I was glad it became a topic because these are things that people need to know about. Yeah, and it was, you know, secondly, arguing that these cheap, manipulated wines can play a place. I think that for some people, their wine epiphany will happen with a 1961 Barolo, and for others... A bottle of yellowtail might be what hopefully sets them on the path to becoming a thoughtful drinker. The inclination that the wine world has too often of telling people what to taste instead of showing them how to taste. And to me, the latter is a much more solid foundation for a relationship with wine and what I hope to do with the book. One other big section of the book that I love that you really journey into is the service aspect because it's one of the things that you have to do for the certificate, Court of Master Sommelier's certificate is the service aspect. And you ended up spending some time on the floor with one of your friends at a a very, very fine establishment, fine dining establishment in New York City. And you really talked about how the principles of service really trump personal whims. And that's one of your quotes that I loved because it showed that we should enjoy ourselves and sit back and be taken care of. The service world is there for you and uh, let it let them be there for you. And I thought that was a great angle too for people to understand what goes on behind the scenes truly for a fine dining server with a real gift for hospitality. Yeah, absolutely. I think 
people think of chefs as being the primary creators in a restaurant. But to me, sommeliers are creators in their own right. You know, they are cork pullers, but they're also storytellers. And I think a good psalm can really create a certain emotional experience um, through the flavors that they deliver, through the service, even through the words that they choose at the table. I mean, that being said, I was also really fascinated by the ways that these high-end restaurants are judging you every bit as much as you are judging them. Um, You know, if you spend a lot of money, they will label you a wine PX, which is short for Personne Extraordinaire. If you spend a whole heck of a lot of money, you will be a wine PPX, which is Personne Particulièrement Extraordinaire. If you throw a temper tantrum, you might be an HWC, which is short for handle with care. So you are not anonymous and you are being watched. But I do think that it's in the service, again, of delivering the experience emotionally and intellectually that someone wants out of a meal. I mean, when you're going to these restaurants like Marais or Oriole, where I worked, it's not just for the calories. It's for a bigger, momentous memory, really. You take a very journalistic approach into your writing, but you seem really to entertain as much as you teach. Uh, You don't take yourself too seriously. That's also what makes the book very approachable. But what satisfaction do you get from from your writing and especially this book? Back when I was a wine ignoramus, I felt like I should know something about wine. And I picked up a lot of wine books and they read like dictionaries. I mean, it was facts that were just in one ear and out the other. Or they were these stories about fancy people drinking fancy wines in fancy places. And I felt like I couldn't relate. And so for me, a big goal of Corkdork was to share practical information, but really do it in the course of a story. I mean, there are characters, there are tensions, there are agonies and ecstasies that go along with this very personal journey that I took. And so I think that for me, the goal was, yeah, both to teach readers, but more than that, to tell a story and to tell a very different type of story about wine that has ever existed before. What have you gathered from this experience for your next project? Well, I will say that when you uh, embark on a project that involves wine, no one warns you that you are choosing a topic that makes you very sleepy, gives you a headache, and makes you desperately hungry. So there is a little bit of liability in that one, but the end was all worth it. I mean, this is an experience that has changed not just how I relate to a glass, but how I relate to really everything um, in my day-to-day life. We've all heard of mindfulness, but I've come to embrace a mindset that I drive as sensefulness, which is really this idea that it's by tuning into our senses that we can better make sense of the world. And I think that starts with a glass of wine, or it can for some people, but it certainly doesn't end there. Well, that's how it opened up your eyes for that. And I think many people learn different things from this book. I definitely did, even being in the wine world. Um, But it definitely allows you to remember to think more about all the beauty and all the things that are around you every day that we just absorb so unconsciously. I appreciate that. I'm glad to hear it. That was the idea. So thank you. Thank you for being here, Bianca Bosker. It has been so much fun talking with you. And I believe you will be on island um, for some of the summer and maybe doing an event at the Westmore in July. And uh, you will be over at the Nantucket Culinary on Sunday for an event. So hopefully anyone who's interested can come by and say hello. Yep. And I'll be at the Athenaeum on August 14th. 
Awesome. Thank you so much, Bianca. And cheers with a ma- <laughs> like a big glass, a, a, like a magnum <laughs> worth <laughs> to your success and to this book. It's fantastic. Thank you. I appreciate it.